Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. A large part of trading standards enforcement involves working alongside other regulators and agencies to ensure consumers are protected. In this week's episode, we'll be talking to Jim Tebbit, Senior Compliance Executive at the Advertising Standards Agency and Committee of Advertising Practice, about how his organisation works closely with trading standards to tackle misleading adverts that can result in real consumer harm. As Jim discusses, advertising can often be the tip of the iceberg when it comes to spotting errant business practices. When a business is putting out misleading adverts, there's a strong chance that there could be deeper problems at play. And with the advent of new ways for businesses to reach out to consumers, via social media and online influencers, for example, regulators such as the ASA, the Competition and Markets Authority and Trading Standards need to have a coherent, joined-up approach to looking out for, and cracking down on, new opportunities for consumer detriment. Jim started things off by giving some background into his role and taking us on a whistle-stop tour through the history of the organisation. Yeah, my name is Jim Tebbit. I work on the compliance team at the Advertising Standards Authority. So on the compliance team, we work on the sanctions and enforcement side about enforcing ASA rulings. So once the ASA is ruled on a subject, we work with the advertisers to try and bring them into compliance. And in the event they don't comply, we can apply our sanctions, which includes our legal backstop, which is referral to trading standards. So what is the ASA and how did it come about? Set up over 50 years ago by the advertising industry in what we like to call a spirit of enlightened self-interest. So the story starts back in 1955 when the first commercial TV ads were were aired. And when these went on air, they were strictly regulated by by law, say by statute. And even though advertising goes back much longer than this, this, this was the first time that ads and the claims within them had ever been regulated. And so by the end of this decade and towards the early 60s, the ad industry was conscious that regulation was working, it was improving consumer trust, and they knew where the tide was turning as well. So they formed the Committee of Advertising Practice to create a self-regulatory system for advertising and to write some advertising, advertising rules. But that was in 1961. And in 1962, the Advertising Standards Authority was formed and the, uh, to be independent and to investigate complaints under these rules. And the upshot of this was that the government recognised this as an effective form of regulation and they said uh, statutory control um, wasn't necessary. So we can fast forward to 2020. And um, so we're now the the established means for regulating uh, misleading advertising. So we're recognised by the government and the courts and indeed other regulators. And for the last 15 years, we've taken on broadcast ads as well. So even though it started with TV and TV ads being regulated by government. We now regulate TV and radio live broadcasts um, under an arrangement with Ofcom. And obviously, we've had to move with the times. So since 2010, uh, we've also regulated non-paid-for content online. So things like websites and claims on people's social media uh, pages. And and that's yeah, that's where we are today. We might have noticed that I mentioned two bodies: the ASA and the Committee of Advertising Practice, so the ASA and CAP. And together, these constitute the ASA system, which we call it, but they are separate bodies. So it's worth worth remembering there is a difference between them. So the Committee of Advertising Practice is the um, the industry-facing side of the system. So that's made up of 
advertising industry bodies and publishers and those kind of bodies. And uh, it writes and reviews the, uh, the rules, the advertising codes, and also coordinates sanctions with the ASA to ensure compliance. So that's the industry-facing side. The ASA is the one most people are probably more familiar with because this is the public-facing side, which investigates complaints about ads. It's independent of CAP, and it publishes the resultant ASA rulings, which uh, works out whether an ad has or has not breached the code. And these rulings are published every Wednesday on the ASA website, and you can see them there. And how are the ASA and CAP funded? It's important to note that our funding is free to the taxpayer. So it's funded by the industry on a levy on advertising space. So when a business runs an ad campaign, there's a levy, which is a voluntary levy, but most of them, lots of them pay into it because it's in their interest to keep the system going, of a 0.1% of the cost of buying ad space. And there is a 0.2% levy on some direct mail, which ensures the ASA is adequately funded to keep, um, to keep the system going. It's also important to note that this is at arm's length, though it's not, it's not us going directly to advertisers and, and asking them to pay it. There are separate funding boards who collect on our behalf and then they send the, the money to us. So we can't be pressured by... We don't know who funds us like, and how much, and so we can't be pressured by, by advertisers in that regard. Could you tell us a bit more about the difference in approach to regulation as it applies to print versus broadcast advertising? There are two advertising codes. So there's the non-broadcast code and there's the broadcast code. And so even though there's, in practice, a bit of overlap now, we've got kind of video on demand. They are two separate codes with two kind of backgrounds for them. And so in regard to uh, telly and radio, which... Like I said, back in the 50s, it was regulated by, by the state. Um, it's the live broadcasting is still within communications regulation. But since um, 2004, Ofcom has contracted TV and radio advertising to the ASA so we can be a one-stop shop for ads across all media. This was renewed in um, 2014. And for live, live broadcast, tele and radio, we can still refer advertisers back to Ofcom if they breach our, our rules. So we can still do the heavy lifting, but if there, are, there is a troublesome broadcaster, we can send it back to Ofcom and then all the statutory controls come back in. And what proportion of the cases you deal with are the result of complaints from the public versus your own monitoring and investigations? Does, does the ASA only get to see an advert once it's been published or broadcast? To respond to the point about how much is... Um, complaints led and how much is proactive is something that's been changing and moving towards being more proactive over time and over the next few years I think we will see a shift in being much more proactive so we are a complaints handling body so we do respond to every complaint um, 98% of the complaints we receive are from members of the public but we do accept complaints from competitors and and some you know, things like people like journalists and politicians occasionally and we do, yeah, we do investigate them. But in, um, in 2018, we dealt with about 34,000 complaints relating to just over 25,000 ads. And in that year, we also resolved 27,000 cases proactively. So this is probably where the scales are just... 2018 is when the scales tip towards more proactive work. And the reason for doing that is that it's easier... Um, it's more effective to do kind of one-to-many, you know, 
enforcement. And so that's what we do on, on our team, really, our sector compliance projects, where we take, um, we take an ASA ruling which can establish a principle that can apply to a whole market, and we take that to the entire market to try and achieve a level playing field. Um, to use an example of that, we just published our Botox enforcement notice, which is about um, um, because Botox is a prescription-only medicine and it can't be advertised to the public. And even though an ASA ruling or there might be a suite of a few ASA rulings about particular advertisers, the whole industry of Botox services is in the hundreds of thousands. And so that's what we're doing. We've, uh, we know our, um, our communication has gone over to over 130,000 people. We're not saying that these are 100,000 cases or anything like that. But this is just, a, I think it's an example of how we're trying to push towards one-to-many industry-wide approach. So this, we're definitely going to be seeing more of that proactive approach in the future. Are there any other types of product or types of adverts that you monitor more closely than others, things like gambling, perhaps? There are a few um, kind of perennial issues that always merit close attention. So gambling, as you mentioned, that's, um, that's definitely one of these issues that's, that there's a whole section of the code about gambling rules that has a lot of attention on it and working closely with the Gambling Commission in that regard. Um, alcohol advertising, of course, that's another one. Anything involving children, advertising to children. And of course, just saying advertising to children, this is something that changes all the time as well when children use media differently. So you say advertising to children is always going to be a big issue, but they're always slightly separate issues depending on the media in which it appears. And I guess you could say there are other things that uh, become um, hot topics for a while and then perhaps become less so afterwards. One that immediately... Um, springs to mind is it's kind of photoshopping of cosmetic ads that a few like maybe four or five years ago that was that was a huge huge issue where people like using mascara and using photoshop to make the eyebrows seem bigger now that doesn't seem so much of a of a huge issue so we um we devote less attention to it there are other things that have emerged in the last couple of years as huge issues things that we're focusing on at the moment things like influencer marketing and just quickly what is an influencer these are people on on social media so often youtube and instagram who have um yeah who have high numbers of followers and are very popular in their instagram accounts and they have arrangements with brands to promote um their products and so we have a test about whether they're covered by our rules so there needs to establish if there's there's payment. It doesn't necessarily have to be financial payment. It can be something reciprocal, like um, you can have these clothes or you can come on our holiday for free. And there's also got to be control, so payment and control um, by the brand. So that can be something like you must use this this hashtag or we have, you know, we must sign off what you're going to say. It's quite broad as well. But if you're covered by our definition of influencer marketing, you've got to comply with our rules and you've got to make it clear that the post um, is an ad. So things like hashtag ad. Uh, of course, this is something that that didn't exist um, a few years ago, but it has emerged as a really big issue. And it's something where um, us and the CMA and other bodies, of course, are putting quite a lot of resource in to make sure it's, um, it's clear for everybody. 
And what about individuals selling goods online in a personal capacity through a classified advert? Classified ads are expressly out of our remit. One of the first sections of our code lays out the scope about what is and what isn't in in our remit. And what is in our remit covers most of what you'd expect, like kind of paid-for display ads and press ads, posters, TV, radio, etc. But there is a list of things that's not covered by our remit, and that does cover things like fly posting, things like point-of-sale stuff, like when you go into a shop, there's a claim that would be covered by trading standards, of course. Things like fly posting, which is illegal. Uh, Things like editorial, you know, people's opinions without marketing. So there's a whole list of things which defines what is and what isn't in in our remit. How often does your work overlap with that of trading standards specifically and other enforcers and regulators more generally? I say constantly. There's advertising... A company's advertising and business practice are often just fundamentally and essentially intertwined. And so in many, many cases, advertising is just the, it's like the visible tip of, um, of what you see. And there's a whole load of business practices which be covered by trading standards um, under the surface. And so we do work very closely with other regulators and enforcers and indeed on a, um, a less formal basis with trade bodies and industry bodies to try and try and get compliance well trading standards and ofcom are probably our closest partners by virtue of um trading standards being our legal backstop so i mentioned that we're the established means for misleading advertising and the asa has misleadingness rules in the codes which they can rule against rule against ads and then it can once the rulings happens Um, an issue can come to the compliance team and we try and enforce them using our own self-regulatory sanctions. But if we've exhausted our entire process and an advertiser is still misleading, we can refer a case to trading standards and to undertake statutory action. And so our current current backstop is administered by Bucks and Surrey since the start of 2019. We have a really good close relationship with them. And... They can take on our referral cases and we're funding from National Trading Standards. So they've, they've got some ring fence funding to look into it. And once it's out of our hands, it's out of our decision process. It's out of self-regulation. So it's all up to Bucks and Surrey for England and Wales. I should mention, of course, that for Scotland, we've got a relationship, an equivalent relationship with COSLA and the Department for the Economy in Northern Ireland. So it covers the entire UK. And so they, um, they can investigate cases under trading standards legislation like the CPRs. And we've had lots of success in them taking down problem websites and bringing advertisers into compliance. And we've also had a few prosecution cases that have resulted from um, ASA referrals. So that is just through our formal backstop channel. But also we're members of the Consumer Protection Partnership. So we work very closely with... Um, trading standards and other enforcers like, you know, CMA, uh, since advice as well through this project-based approach. So examples of that can be, there was a lot of work into advertised delivery restrictions and surcharges, so partial delivery prices and the fairness of uh, surcharges, which I think is ongoing based in Scotland. But we work very, very closely with um, the Consumer Protection Partnership and Highland Trading Standards, Trading Standards Scotland and, and other bodies to kind of 
work out who's best placed to do different aspects of that work. So we did an enforcement notice about the advertising side. And I know uh, the delivery law website was created for trading standards facing consumer advice. And that's just one of many, many projects that we do with other enforcers, just making sure that the organisation that's best placed to do with different parts, us being advertising, does what they're best suited for, but we all coordinate to make sure we're all giving consistent advice and being as effective as we can be. Since Trading Sanders took over as our backstop from the OFT in 2013, we've referred um, just over 60 cases to them. So when you consider that we deal with, I say, kind of 25,000, 30,000 cases a year, it's a very small um, percentage of them. But having this backstop is absolutely fundamental because it shows that we have teeth. And it was always, it can be a criticism and a flaw in some self-regulatory systems if they're felt that, you know, there's no teeth, there's nothing backing them up. And having an effective backstop like we do, it makes our whole job easier. And so I said there's only been six referrals and there's only been three prosecutions since 2013. So that's not many. But the fact that these happened and they're on the ASA website and they're visible for anyone to see shows that there are real consequences for not complying with our codes. That means you can end up can end up being prosecuted. So this is just through our formal process. But we have um we have um contributed to trading standards prosecutions like like the yeah, the National San- Trading Standards um e crime team. Uh, did a lot of work into copycat websites a few a few years back, which was also a big issue for us when they emerged back in around 2010. And we were doing lots of work into that kind of simultaneously before Trading Standards took the lead, which is rightfully so. But we still contributed with lots of witness statements and came to court to give evidence. And even though they were Trading Standards cases, uh, we did work closely with them, and a lot of them ended up with quite hefty sentences for um, for the copycats in question. Now, presumably, it's very rare for an advert to get to the prosecution stage. I'm assuming most advertisers would be happy to rectify or pull an advert before things get anywhere near that. Three prosecutions in what six years <laughs> is a might seem low, but I think it's testament to how effective and how much heavy lifting the ASA. ASA does. Even though it's fundamental that as when we contact someone, they're aware of having of, of the consequences of non-compliance, our emphasis is very much on trying to bring advertisers into line. And so we um, we provide as much advice and as much guidance as we can. There's whole sections of the ASA website with a searchable database for people to put in pretty much any subject that's advertised and it comes out with a a stream of advice we also have um a copy advice team which is a whole team where you can when advertisers can ask for pre-publication copy advice and they get a response within 24 hours so somebody can send an ad and saying like this is going to be published does it comply and we can advise um before it before it goes out even on my team on the compliance team where something gets passed to us when there has been established there's a breach of an ASA ruling or a breach of the code, the vast, vast majority of cases are resolved 
when an advertiser agrees to bring their advertising into line. And it's, even though we have these sanctions available, which we do apply, like I said, our main focus is compliance and bringing, bringing them back into the fold. Yeah, as a self-regulator, that's, that's the biz, biggest success for us. And I guess it also means that it shows how advertisers and the advertising industry, even though it's very competitive, they, they respect regulation and they want, um, they want to be regulated because it improves consumer trust and it shows that they're... And consumer trust means that it's worth spending money on advertising because without consumer trust, it's kind of money down the drain almost. I guess this sort of creates a, a virtuous circle between advertising agencies, their clients and consumers. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's even more deeper than that because agencies will be members of CAP. So they would actually be bought, bought in and being part of the system. And so um, they'd be under arrangement that they will help to enforce the codes. And indeed, much of our, many of our self-regulatory sanctions that I mentioned um, previously are by working with publishers and working with media to stop bad ads appearing. So like an example of that, which is probably our oldest sanction, is an ad alert system, which is when there is a problem with, um, say, press advertising or magazine advertising. Um, we work, try to work with the advertiser, but for whatever reason they're unable or unwilling to comply with us, we can send an ad alert, which is an alert that goes out to the the industry, so the press and press publishers, and they will circulate this. And it says, if if this advertiser submits an ad for publication in your in your magazine, don't publish it unless it gets checked by our copy advice team. So it starts working with the industry to make sure there are consequences for non-compliance and bad ads don't appear. So all aspects, yeah, all parts of the system are bought into it. In terms of trading standards and consumer protection, to what extent is the ASA interested in the nature of a product being advertised? And at what point will that be referred to another agency in the case of things like dangerous goods and counterfeits, etc.? Well, I guess it depends on, on the ad and the products that we aren't, we aren't a products regulator. And so we don't look into things beyond the, the, av- the ad and what's said in the advert. Yeah. But saying this, if, there, if we get something, if we get a complaint about something that does seem like an outright scam that you do see a bit of on, online, we're, we're thinking, how effective would the self-regulatory system be here in trying to bring this advertiser in line. In cases like that, we'd be likely to refer it to someone like Action Fraud or, right. or someone like that. Uh, when it comes, if there's a complaint about counterfeiting or something like that, that wouldn't be in our remit, really, because it's, um, it'll be an issue that goes beyond what's said in the ad. The advert and the business practice can be very much intertwined. And, of course, when, you're, when you get a complaint about the ad, You've got to look what the the ad says and look at the claims made for it, and make a make a judgment. So we have um, we do yeah we do get complaints coming in about websites for say fashion fashion websites that um, somebody might say, oh these aren't the shoes that we are looking for, and also that I thought I was going to get, and also it came from China when it wasn't clear about that. If the complaint was only about the shoes being counterfeit, it's not something we'd investigate. We'd send it to, um, we'd ask them to complain to 
trading standards via since advice. But on the point about not making clear they're from China, that's something that we could say is a misleading omission. And we have investigated that kind of thing and published an ASA ruling. And then it's come to like my team, the compliance team. And unsurprisingly, the advertiser hasn't responded or hasn't complied. And this is a good example, really, of things that we have sent to trading standards as a backstop. And they've ended up pulling down the website. So it is, um, it can be nuanced, really. It's difficult sometimes to make a call by saying, is this, this is a clearly dodgy product, because you need to do a bit of digging a lot of the time. And so that's, we just make a call about whether the claims appear to be misleading and within our remit. And, and if it does, we're quite likely to try and investigate it. So what kind of sanctions can be applied to those who are putting out misleading adverts? Uh, well, I start with um, the sanctions we've got available to us. An ASA ruling against an advertiser at the end of a investigation is published on, a formal ruling is published on the ASA website. And even though this is a, this is a statement of what happened, that in itself can be, can be quite an effective kind of quasi-sanction for an advertiser because reputable advertisers, one of the most important things for them is their brand and their reputation. And having an ASA ruling against them saying their advertising is misleading or offensive or harmful in itself can be enough to, to stop, it, stop it happening again. If an advertiser breaches an ASA ruling, and it doesn't have to be the advertiser ruled against because it can establish a principle that can be cross-applied like, like kind of common law precedent. And we, of course, try to contact the advertiser, try to provide advice and guidance uh, so they comply with the, the rules. But if they don't, we do have a suite of self-regulatory sanctions available to us. And these all vary depending on the media in which it appeared. So I mentioned uh, things like press and magazines and also inserts in mailings. Uh, this is our ad alert sanction where we work with the advertising industry as kind of gatekeepers to stop bad ads appearing. We have uh, similar arrangements with Royal Mail about kind of direct, direct mailings and stopping, stopping proper mailings happening. Something similar with the outdoor poster industry as well to stop posters appearing. There's some pre-vetting um, there if an advertiser repeatedly um, breaches the rules. Um, in regard to online, we have three sanctions which we can escalate. So if there is um, an ad on Google or Bing, so a paid-for ad that links through to um, that problem website, we can ask Google or Bing to remove that ad which of course is really effective for um, internet retailers because lots of people search and then click on the first thing they see. And having this ad taken down is, can really hit the bottom line. So it's a good, it's a powerful sanction. And we quite often hear from advertisers when we've got that ad removed to just say we're, we want to bring our website into line so we can get our ads back. So, so that works very effectively. We've also got a name and shame sanction for websites where um, we put their details and the nature of the breach on the list of non-compliant online advertisers on the ASA website. And we try to use search engine optimization to make that appear as closely as possible to um, the advertiser's own website in, um, you know, in, in natural search listings. Uh, we've got an escalated version of that. If um, 
the name and shame has been up there for some time and they're still not complying. We've got a, a credit line with Google to do our own ads. And so we can kind of skip SEO and just make sure we appear at the top of search listings saying ASA alert, this advertiser's non-compliant. And so that's very effective if you're searching for, I don't know, coffee. I'm just looking at my coffee here. And, um, and the first thing you see is saying this advertiser's making, making a problem claim. Once they've exhausted all, you know, what, if we've exhausted all of those sanctions and they're still not complying, that's when we can refer to our backstop. We also have more informal but still effective routes with um, other aspects of online advertising like, um, like posts on social media where we do work closely with companies like Facebook and Google to, um, to remove, to get problem ads removed, and also companies like Amazon and eBay. So we've got, yeah, so we've got a range of sanctions, but they all vary according to media. We don't want to apply these sanctions. We want people to comply. But if they don't comply, even after the sanctions, we've got our backstop afterwards. What would you say are the main challenges you face at the moment and what are your priorities for the coming years? I think you're alluding to what is one of our biggest uh, biggest issues and it, in, indeed it's the focus of our new strategy, five-year strategy that, was, um, that we started, I think it was last year. And this is all about advertising online. So we've got, you know, we've got a very established, effective way of, advertising older media but um we do have challenges we can't we've got to be honest about it there's lots of online advertising there's lots of you know just just in the scope and the range of it it's something that we do we are doing tons and tons of work on but we could do it better so we're trying to over the next few years we're trying to work closely with advertising platforms and also to try and use um, use new tech to to identify these problems at, at scale and see if we can become just a, a very effective online um, online regulator. And kind of harking back to that, the Botox project that we just launched, um, so in January, last week, I should say, there were two sides of it, the dissemination part, where we've worked with over 25 uh, trade bodies and kind of pharmaceutical companies and other regulators to try and get the message out as widely as possible. But the whole point is to put the industry on notice that we are going to do enforcement afterwards. And the enforcement is going to consist of some new monitoring technology that we've bought, uh, which is a and a social media monitoring tool which we can use to identify Botox ads at scale on an ongoing basis. So rather than kind of manually monitoring or looking at things individually, we can run reports that pull out, well, hopefully not huge numbers because advertisers are complying, but um, high numbers, if necessary, of problem posts about Botox, which we can then report to Facebook, which Facebook said they're removed. So this tech is just one example of how we can use, use technology to try and identify issues at scale and then do enforcement in social media, which is a big, big challenge. Now, what would you say to people working in trading standards who come across a case that involves the breach of advertising regulations? How could the ASA or CAP help? I guess it depends on the, the nature of the, the issue and the, the complaint at hand. If you've got a situation where somebody was misled by an advert and consequences kind of come from that, it might be a case where 
the ASA might be best place to um, to look into it because if the fundamental issue is the advert, we do get quite a few complaints from trading standards um, quite often about food claims like health and nutrition nutrition claims, which um, we do rule against and we do take action uh, take action against. So we do get we do get plenty of complaints from trading standards. If it's something that might be kind of more endemic across an industry is something I'd advise people to go to well, to think about taking to the Consumer Protection Partnership because if there's an industry-wide issue, it's something we could all club together and we can deal with the advertising side, training standards can deal with another side. If it's something that has a range of issues, some of which are business practices and some of which are advertising, depending on the ad, I guess, it's a... You, a training standards officer could send the ad, report the ad to us through our website and we could deal with the advert because the advert would be in our remit if it's uh, potentially misleading or harmful or offensive. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's something that we could deal with and we'd be happy to look into that. So finally then, what, what would you say is the general benefit of the ASA and CAP to wider society? Essentially, what, what would a society without the ASA and CAP look like? Well, I suppose there were two aspects to that, really. What would it, what would society look like without any advertising regulation? And also, what would it look like um, without the ASA and CAP? So I suppose in relation to having no, um, no ad regulation at all, I guess we'd be in a potential kind of Wild West situation where there's no, no consumer trust in adverts. People, um, consumers would wouldn't have any faith in what they see, which in turn would be um, would completely devalue advertising for business because you need that, that element of a consumer trust to, um, to make your ad spend all worthwhile. Um, without the ASA, so if there was statutory regulation, I think we'd have a system which would just necessarily be slower and more legalistic, and obviously it would cost the taxpayer money. Um, the thing that works for the ASA is that we that we can work quickly and we can do the and using industry know-how as well to do the heavy lifting so in a dynamic industry like advertising which changes especially online there's ads appear so quickly we can take action effectively and quickly to stop problem ads appearing and um, take action where necessary but that like I said before is absolutely in partnership with um, statutory enforcers like trading standards so we do the heavy lifting but when we need to we've got the backstop in place so together ASA with trading standards backstop works really really well well that's it for another episode thanks to Jim Tebbit for talking to us and thank you for listening we'll be back again in a fortnight's time with more from the world of trading standards if you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.